The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. asked me how, how are you how are you feeling I said I'm feeling really excited pregnant with expectation and so I'm expecting something incredible to take place in each of our hearts as we come around the world and so if you've got your word with you if you've got the Bible with you please go ahead and locate it and turn to Matthew chapter 6 Matthew chapter 6 for those of you who are familiar with Matthew chapter 6 Matthew chapter 6 is smack bang in the center of, in my mind, the most influential and yet challenging sermon, human discourse ever given. And of course, I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the spiritual practice that we're going to be thinking about, because we're doing a series on spiritual practices this morning, is based on Matthew chapter 6. And as we're going to see this morning, we've got to get this practice right. If we're going to experience lasting liberty, Christian freedom, then we've got to get this practice right. But as we're going to see in just a minute, this practice is challenging. This practice is difficult to practice. And we're going to see why in just a minute. So if you've got your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 24 and read down to the end of the chapter, verse 34. This is the Lord Jesus. He says these words, no one can serve two masters. Now, some of you are nervous already. You know where this sermon is going, don't you? Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall I eat? Or what shall I drink? Or what shall I wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Secure in Simplicity. Secure in Simplicity. We're going to be thinking about simplicity this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We gather before you as your people. And we seek your help this morning. I seek your help. I pray you would help me be pastoral. That you would help me be prophetic. And Lord God, you would help us, your people, collectively be open and receptive. We want to receive your word, which is challenging. But Lord God, there is much fruit. There's much liberty on the other side of the challenge. 
And so would you, Lord God, carry us through? Would you take us through? In your precious name we ask. Amen. If you're new with us this morning, I want to extend a warm welcome to you. And just mention that you've joined us in week five of an eight-part preaching series that we kicked off, uh, we've called Breathe. And really the goal of this series is to help us cultivate a deeper walk with Jesus, to, to help us cultivate a richer, more wonderful relationship with Jesus by practicing certain practices that God, by his grace, has given to us. And so a few weeks ago, we kicked off the Breathe series by looking at the practice or the rhythm or the, the pleasure of fasting. And then subsequently, we've looked at various practices such as meditation and prayer. And then last week, he looked at the dual practice of silence and solitude. Well, this morning we're thinking about simplicity, and he'll mention last week in his sermon that he had a tough gig, but this is a tough gig, seriously. Talking about simplicity in our wealthy, affluent nation, as, as Beck said, you know, it can be really difficult. And so it's going to be a little hot under the, under the collar, right? The temperature in the room may rise a little as we move through this sermon, but, but hold on, okay? Fasten your seatbelts. Don't pre- press the eject button, okay? If you, if you see someone getting a bit jittery, just put your hand on them and say, there, there, it's okay. The good news is coming, all right? So no being distracted this morning. No pretending to take notes on your phones when really you're playing Candy Crush, all right? I know what you're doing, I know what you're doing, uh, or pretending to go to the toilet, okay, conveniently. No, 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 just stay put, it's going to be okay. And so we're going to think about simplicity under the following three headings. The call to simplicity, the cultivation of simplicity, and then thirdly, the catalyst for simplicity. The call, the cultivation, the catalyst. So first, the call to simplicity. In our text, Jesus issues the call to simplicity when he uses these famous words that no doubt you know off by heart. Are you ready? Verse 33, we can say it parrot fashion. Seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, I know that the majority of us know that verse off by heart, but here's the subtle trick about this verse. Even though we may know it off by heart, maybe our hearts don't really know it. That's the trick. That's the subtlety. Because listen, if you really want to understand what this verse means, then you've got to back up a bit and understand the context. Now, I want you to remember this. Context determines meaning. All right, Write that down. It's a helpful little thing to remember. Context determines meaning. For example, just of late at home, I've been walking into my bathroom and I've been finding my little Maddie, two and a half year old, sitting on my toilet with a big smile on her face. She's not on the potty, she's on the toilet. And she says to me with a big grin, she says, Daddy, I did a poo-poo. And I'm like, really? I said, oh, but it's not on the pot in the toilet. I said, oh, you're such a big girl. Well done. I use that phrase, you're such a big girl. And of course, I use that phrase because I'm applauding her. I'm affirming her, and she's really happy about it. I said, give yourself a pat on your back. You're such a big girl. Now, listen, that phrase, you're such a big girl, means something positive. But listen. When I use that same phrase on the soccer field, it means something entirely different, right? When I just tackled someone and the guy's rolling around, whinging and complaining to the referee, he just kicked me, he just kicked me. And I say to him, you're such a big what, girl? It means something completely different, right? I'm not being positive, I'm being insulting. And by the way, I don't normally say that on the soccer field because I don't like being punched in the head. But you get the point. Context determines meaning. Meaning. 
Now, we need to ask the question, all right, what's the context then to Jesus' famous words here? Seek first the kingdom. Yeah, we know it, but what does he really mean? Well, we need to do the truck thing. You know what the truck thing is? we got to back up. Beep, 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 beep. Got to back up, kind of wide lens approach to really see what Jesus is driving at here. And when we do the truck thing, beep, 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 and back up, we realize that the whole passage, our passage, begins, or it's a part of a section that begins in verse 19, and it ends right at the end of the chapter. And you know what? When you carefully examine what Jesus is driving at, what he's stressing in this section, you can summarize it in one word. You know what that one word is? Stuff. Stuff or possessions. For example, in verses 19 through 21, Jesus says, don't be unwise. Don't be a fool. Don't chase after earthly stuff. Why? And here's the logic. He says, because there are such things as moths and they will eat your stuff. And thieves, they will steal your stuff. And so don't be an idiot, don't be a fool, but instead chase after heavenly stuff, heavenly possessions, heavenly treasures. And here's the wonderful thing. The logic of it is that when you have your treasures in heaven, guess what? Your heart will also be there as well. Stuff. And in verses 22 and 23, Jesus uses an interesting kind of Hebrew metaphor. But essentially, I haven't got time to get into it, but essentially he's saying that we are to be generous with our stuff and not stingy. And in verse 24, he reinforces this same idea by saying, famously again, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot chase after stuff, earthly stuff, and God's stuff simultaneously. Interestingly, the word there is mammon, and that word was used to refer to material possessions in general. And so he said, you can't do that. If you try, it'll be like sitting on a barbed wire fence. It's going to be really hard for you. It's going to be really miserable. You just can't chase after both. And then we come to our passage, verses 25 and following. And what is he talking about? He's talking about stuff again. In particular, not what? Being worried about stuff. Not being like unbelievers who run after stuff, clothes and food and material things. But instead, we do what? Chase after God. And so when we finally arrive at our famous verse here, verse 33, Jesus is urging us to so, listen church, so run after the stuff of God, the, the things of God, that we experience the freedom of not being controlled by stuff. That's what he's saying in context. Is that helpful? That's, that's what he means. So in, in, in essence, he's saying, I want you to pursue and cultivate Christian Simplicity. You know, one of my favorite movies of all time is Forrest Gump, starring Tom Hanks. Who, who's seen Forrest Gump? If you haven't seen Forrest Gump, that's serious FOMO going on. You really need to see Forrest Gump. It's amazing. One of my favorite scenes is the scene where Forrest discovers his ability to run. I'm going to run like the wind. You know, you've seen the scene? I run like the wind, Jenny. And, and, I've seen it way too many times. <clears throat> and, and he's only about 10 or 11, and he's, he's standing with Jenny, and he's kind of down a dirt track, and it's this narrow track. And they're standing there having a conversation, and all of a sudden, boom, this rock hits him in the chest. And, got, and then another rock, boom, hits him in the head, and he knocks, he's fallen, he falls to the ground, he's got a cut on his head, and he looks up, and, and the town bullies are there. And they're picking on Forrest, you know, because he's got the, his legs in this strange contraption and he can't walk properly. And so he's bullied. And so at that, he begins to run because Jenny, Jenny, his friend, says, run, Forrest, run. You remember? And it's all in slow motion. Run, Forrest. 
person, but he can't run because his legs are in this, this contraption with, 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 with iron rods and leather straps, and he can't run. And so the bullies, the town bullies, they see it, they jump on their bikes, and they uh, kind of cycle after uh, Forrest to, to bully him and beat him up some more, and, and they, they're kind of in hot pursuit. And all the while, Jenny's like, run, Forrest, run down this narrow pathway. Run, Forrest, run. And he's trying to run, but he can't run. But then all of a sudden, something amazing happens. As, as Jenny is saying, run, Forrest, run, Forrest, he finds it within himself to, to pick up some speed. And as he does, his legs begin to bend. You know the scene. And as his legs begin to bend and he takes strides, quicker strides, these iron rods and these leather straps burst from his legs. And he's freed and he leaves the bullies in his wake. And they get really annoyed and they throw down their bikes and off goes Forrest. And he was running like the wind. He's seriously running, running, running. Listen, church. Here's the point. When Jesus says, run, run, run after the things of God, run after the stuff of God, what he means is when we do that, the irons of worldly ambition, the leather straps of earthly stress and concern will break off our hearts. They will fall off our lives because, look, you cannot simultaneously chase the things of God and the things of the world. And so when we chase the things of God continually, constantly, increasingly, those things will be left behind. We will run like the wind. Amen? So if you want a definition of Christian simplicity, it's like this is what I've come up with. Um, Here it is. It's already on the screen. Amazing. Prophetic. The happy detachment from the control of stuff. I think that's what Christian simplicity, we can narrow it down. It's the happy detachment. It's not the reluctant detachment. Oh, don't really. It's the happy detachment. Why? Because we're going to see at the end. Because we have the ultimate treasure and the ultimate security already. The happy detachment from the control of stuff. And this is what Jesus, as our Lord, is calling us to pursue, to cultivate Christian simplicity. Now, question. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do this? Because this is hard, right? This is, this is tough. And, and so we need to think, all right, well, well then how, how do we go about cultivating simplicity in our lives? Yeah? How, how do we do that? Well, well, before we get into a few things, I just want to hoist the skull and crossbones flag to fly it over this whole cultivation section because this is potentially very dangerous. There's a picture up here. Yeah. The toxic hazard sign. And I want you to keep this in mind when we move through the, the, the cultivations. How do I actually do it? Because listen, if we seek to cultivate Christian simplicity in isolation to the other practices and rhythms that we've been thinking about, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. If, if you're not in prayer, walking with God, you're not hungering after God, if you're not being alone with God and getting his heart for you, then, then you're going to either, one, become very self-righteous this sense of superiority, like, I've got Christian simplicity in my back pocket, but all these other Christians, you know, they're spending way too much money on themselves, but not me. That's, that's self-righteousness, and self-righteous people are unpleasant to be around, and so I'm pretty sure you don't be unpleasant. But the opposite extreme is that you can fall into the trap of guilt, self-despair. Not self-righteousness, but self-despair, like, ah, oh, I've tried. I've really tried to pursue Christian simplicity. But the tug of the world is just so strong, and you do feel like someone's sitting on a barbed wire fence. You just feel torn. 
And so I want you to remember, as we move through these things, these four helpful things, this sign, all right, because I don't want you to become self-righteous or self-despairing because that's not helpful to anyone, for you and for those around you. So with that in mind, let's think about the cultivation of simplicity. Four things. Richard Foxter, in his helpful book, The Discipline of uh, the Celebration of Discipline, he mentions 10 ways to cultivate Christian simplicity. But I didn't want to thoroughly kind of uh, discourage you this morning. Uh, I thought, okay, I'm not sure if they can handle 10, and we haven't got much time, so maybe just four. And so these are four ways to cultivate Christian simplicity. Here's the first one. Refuse to be sucked in by seductive marketing. They work against each other. If you're sucked in by marketing, you will not be pursuing Christian simplicity. Little, little story. By the way, it was um, Nat and I's 15th anniversary yesterday. Uh, there's a re- I do enjoy your applause, but there's a reason why I just told you that. We had been married for, I don't know, maybe a month or two. And um, I was at home, Nat was at work, and I was at home pottering about as my day off. And I had the TV on, and I don't know to this day why I had the shopping channel on. I don't know. I've never watched it since right, because of this, re- this story. And so, so I was walking past the TV, and, and they were kind of, you know, um, advertising some knives. And I thought, oh, okay. We just got married. Our knives are useless. And so I took a seat, and I watched as this guy demonstrated the titanium professional two knives. I know you want to buy a pair set now, don't you, because of that. And so I was watching him do this demonstration. It was incredible, incredible. He got this one knife out, and he cut through this stainless steel tin. I'm like, oh, man, oh, they're good knives. And then to kind of just pull me in, talk about seduction, he got this one knife, and it was so sharp. It was like a samurai sword. He got this knife, and he, and he got out, and I, I need both hands, but anyhow, he had this one knife. And he was resting it again on the counter. And he had this big red tomato. It was like a hard tomato. You could tell it wasn't a squashy one. It was a hard one. And this is what he did. He just he had the knife and he just dropped it. He didn't throw it. He just dropped it. And the, knife, the, the tomato hit the knife and it just split in two. No juice. That's how sharp the knife was. I thought, you know, back in the day when you actually phoned for things. I, I thought, uh, yeah, um, you know, the titanium two. What do you mean? I'll get an extra set for free. Because I... <laughs> Wonderful. And so I was like a kid, you know, on Christmas morning waiting for my titanium two knives. And so there was a knock on the door. And guess what? Lo and behold, there they were. I unpackaged them. And guess what I did? Oh, yeah. I took out that samurai sword. I put it on the kitchen bench. I found the hardest tomato I could find. And I put it above the blade. And I thought, this is going to be great. And I dropped it. And it just bounced off the blade. (laughs) And I thought, maybe I didn't drop it from high enough. <laughs> so I, I dropped it. Bonk. <laughs> like, oh, my God. So I threw the tomato at the blade. Bonk. And it just bounced off. I thought, okay, okay, okay. Maybe, maybe it was just that one knife. So I grabbed the other knife. You know, the one that can cut through stainless steel. It wouldn't even cut through a loaf of bread, for crying out loud. And I, here I was with two blasted sets of these pointless, blunt knives. And so guess what I did? Well, there was a wedding coming up, and so I re-gifted it. <laughs> the point is, I was sucked in, hook, line, sinker. 
And you know, marketing companies are experts at doing that. You really need this sharper knife. You need to be bulkier. You need to be thinner. You need to be prettier. You need to be quicker. You need this time-saving device, this piece of technology. You need to be smarter, et cetera, et cetera. And often we go, yeah, 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 we do. And we buy into it. And that ruins simplicity because we're kind of torn here, torn there, buying this pointless thing. You remember the Abdu thing? The Abdu? The Abdu did nothing <laughs> except give you a bad back and make your house more cluttered. Everyone on you know, eBay, eBay, everyone was selling an Abdu because they're useless. And so <laughs> don't be sucked in to marketing. But, you know, here's the, the subtle thing as well. This is really bad, and I, I'm kind of not happy about saying this, but there's marketing techniques in the church as well. I, I've spoken to Christians who have told me, sadly, tragically, you know what? I was so manipulated to give at church. Church often, unfortunately, some preachers, they know how to pull your heartstrings. And you just give, you give. You know, it's more blessed to give. It's more blessed to give. And so I can have my private jet to fly around the world. You know, I've got to do that kind of hard evangelism. I need a private jet. You just give that kind of stuff. And a lot of Christians wind up with a hefty debt. And so it's inside and outside the church, this seductive marketing techniques. And so we need to be aware of it. Number two. This is, this, is, this is when the temperature in the room starts to escalate. Oh, dear. Buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. Ooh. <clears throat> like your car. The car you buy or you want to buy. Is it about utility or luxury? Do you feel like throwing something at me? Not, not tomatoes, all right? I'm not really good with tomatoes. <laughs> They'll bounce off. I'll just hold up my blade. <laughs> Good one, Susan. What about this one? Your homes or the, the, the apartment or the unit you really want to buy. Is it about livability or luxury? What about this one? This one's really going to hurt because we're a fashionable church. Your clothes. Uh, this is, I'm going to hide after I say this. Clothes. Listen. Listen. Do we be, buy clothes because we need them? Or do we be, buy clothes because we have fallen into fashion idolatry? What do I mean by fashion idolatry? If we really want people's approval, I've got, I've got to get his approval, her approval, their approval, the group approval. Uh, meaning I've, I've got to buy the trendiest, latest clothes. Then, then that's idolatry. You're given into fashion idolatry, approval. And what does Jesus say? Isn't life more than clothes? Listen to this statement from uh, Richard Foster. He says, stop trying to impress people with your clothes and impress them with your life. Yeah. Life is more than clothes. And we're like, really, Jesus? Yes, yes. Now, here's a little challenge, the test. And by the way, I'm wearing L plates this morning. I'm a rookie at this. I'm not standing here going, <laughs> you know, be like me. I mean, look at me. Right? I mean, image has been an issue for me for a long, long, long time. People's approval, addicted to people's approval. And the Lord's revealing that and breaking it off my heart. And so here's the test. Are you ready? If we're not happy to wear our clothes until they wear out, then we have fallen into fashion idolatry. You're really enjoying the sermon, aren't you? I know you. <laughs> Number three. 
reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. How, how, do, you, how do you know that you're an addict to something? Well, well it's this. It's, it's by watching. This is how you find out. This is how you discern. By watching undisciplined compulsions. For, for example, when you get home from work, it's like you're on autopilot. you just got to switch on the TV. But you don't even think about it. It's just home TV. Home TV kettle, that's, or the, the jug, that's normally the order. I suggest to you that maybe you have a compulsion, a kind of undisciplined compulsion to watch the screen. Or what about this one? <laughs> you wake up in the morning and you can't think about anything, you're bleary-eyed, and, and yet your hand has kind of a mind of its own, and you just reach for the phone. You reach for it. It's like, oh, i got to have my daily injection, my morning injection of social media. I've got to check my... Facebook or got to check this or whatever, I suggest to you that maybe that's an undisciplined compulsion. You, just, just, you know, I, I, I'm reading a book by a guy called Tony Reiki, and uh, he's written a book called 12 Ways That Your Phone Is Changing You. And in one chapter, it's called Addicted to Distraction. He says that on average, we check our phones every four minutes. Every four minutes. So you're trying to check, check, check. Check. No wonder why we struggle with being focused. Christian simplicity in pursuing that. What about this one, last one? Because I know you're hating this point. Sweet things. You've had dinner and maybe just after dinner or later at night you, feel, you find yourself just kind of, you know, sneakily heading to the pantry or to the fridge. <laughs> Where's that chocolate? I just need that sweet thing. Just need it. It's like you're an autopilot. Again, I suggest to you that it's potentially an undisciplined compulsion. And so what do we do with these things? Well, maybe we to fast them. You know, I've heard some great stories when we did the 21 days of prayer and fasting. People came to me and said, oh, I've been struggling with sugar, chocolate for a long time, but you know what? I overcame. And now I realize I don't really need it. I, I, I may enjoy it. It's not like I've given up forever, but I don't need it because I found my need met in God. Or, or someone else said to me, this was great. Um, they said, you know what, uh, normally I go home with my husband and we just put on Netflix straight away. And we watch Netflix over dinner. But because of this 21 days and prayer and fasting, we decided to fast Netflix. And so instead we've had our meal and we've enjoyed having a conversation. Incredible, right? Enjoy having a conversation. And then we've prayed together and, oh, Man, so much fruit has come of that. You see? So this is how we can overcome these things. But we've got to be aware of them. Number four. Last one. <laughs> You're going to hate this one. Develop a habit of giving things away. Christian simplicity is about decluttering, de-accumulating. Richard Foster says this. He says, masses of things that are not needed complicate life, right? That's the antithesis to a life of simplicity. They must be sorted and stored and dusted and resorted and restored and redusted and redusted and redusted. You know the cycle. Most of us could get rid of half of our possessions without any serious sacrifice. Now, here's the suggestion. This is going to be a challenge. This is the challenge I'm going to throw out. This is my suggestion. When you get home, and I'm being straight up serious here, make an appointment with your wardrobe. Just put it in a door, door, uh, diary, appointment with the wardrobe. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to go into your wardrobes or your drawers and find every piece of clothing that you haven't worn for a year. 
And if that's too hard, make it two years. All right? That's grace for you. Your shoes, your belts, your hats, your jeans, your shirts, your suits, every piece of clothing, I want you to put them in one pile, and I'm suggesting you to do this. Give it away. It's liberating. Give it away. And I know some of you are really nervous now. Are you serious? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, oh, but that shirt that I've had hanging in the wardrobe will come back in fashion. I know that checkered shirt will come back. Look, that's a delusion. It's never going to come back in fashion. The color will be different. The shape of the checks will be different. It will be a completely different era, different fashion. And so give it away. Listen, those extra clothes that you haven't worn for so long belong to somebody else. God holds us accountable. Storing up, storing up, accumulating, accumulating. Why? Why? Why can't we just give it to someone, send it overseas to Sri Lanka or the Philippines or someplace else and allow them to be clothed, allow them to look good in your 20-year-old checkered shirt? Listen, accumulation is a sign that we're not ready for heaven. Accumulation is a sign that we're not ready for home. Now, I know how you're feeling right now. You're feeling guilty. Hands up, come on. I'm, I'm feeling the same. This is a challenge to me. And so, so we need to think then, <laughs> lastly, in conclusion, about the catalyst for simplicity. Because if I just left it here, say, hey, the call, and here's the cultivation, just go and do likewise, you will not probably do it. You might do it for a moment, but you might not do it for the long haul. And so we need to think about the, the catalyst. You know what the catalyst is? A catalyst is something that causes something else to come about. And so we are thinking about, well, Christian simplicity, and we need that to come about in our lives if we're going to experience liberation and freedom. But how? How? Well, guilt's not going to do it, church. Guilt will never, ever do it. And so here's the good news. I'm so happy that you've you know, stayed for the whole sermon so far that you haven't thought, I'm kind of out of here, so well done for that. Guilt's never going to do it. Guilt is like caffeine. Guilt is like sugar. It may get you started, quick spike, but, but there's a nasty precipice on the other side of that spike. It won't sustain wholehearted, happy detachment from stuff. So what will? What will? Let me come at this this way. Let me pitch it this way. What's the real issue? What's the real heart issue? Why do we struggle to cultivate Christian simplicity? Why, why at times don't we even want to track down Christian simplicity? Why? Well, well, Jesus puts his finger on the point. He goes right to the core in our text. We don't have to scratch our heads in confusion or ignorance because Jesus puts his, mon, uh, his, his kind of finger on the pulse of the issue in verse 30. Listen to what he says. You ready? He says, you of little faith. This is the core issue. Now, now in context, we need to, what's the context here? Context determines me. What, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about not being worried about stuff, not trying to prop up your life by, by having stuff. This, this liberation of not needing things to bring you security and power and comfort and control, whatever it may be, you don't need those things. But Jesus knows our hearts very well, and he knows that we are often worried about stuff, things. And so if we are, we're not going to pursue Christian simplicity. We're not going to be generous, right? Now listen, Jesus is talking about not a lack of faith, but he's talking about deficient faith. 
and, and I want you never to forget this. What he's saying, in essence, is this. What we struggle with at a, at a heart level, at, at the very core of who we are, is our failure to trust that God is good. Now, we, we sung it this morning. You are good, good, good. And yet, deep, deep, deep down, we don't believe that. We don't believe that which is the reason why we get so bent out of shape, so concerned about this and that, and we, we fret and we worry and we, we, we kind of lose our core. And so we've got to know this about our hearts. This is the great problem in the world, failing to believe that God is good, that he has our best interests at heart. Look, little teaching expose here, just to kind of help you out. We may think externally that religious people and Christians who fall into that trap and non-religious people are worlds apart, chalk and cheese. But when you investigate and look at the heart, the core of those who are religious and those who are irreligious, it's the same. That is, they don't really believe that God is good. Let me explain. The religious person thinks that God is stingy. And so they try and wrench from his reluctant grasp blessings and salvation. Yeah, They don't really believe that he's good. They don't really believe that he's generous. He doesn't, they don't really believe that he wants to give them salvation. And so they try and please him and pry from his hand through their religious practices and observances, salvation. What about the irreligious person, the non-religious person? Well, it's the same. It's the same because at a core level, they don't believe that God is good. They believe that his ways are reluctant, that they're going to uh, kind of drain life from them and strangle their lives. And so they try and forge for themselves happiness and satisfaction apart from God's ways. Again, at a core level, it's the same. They don't believe that God is really good, that his ways are good. You've got to know that about your own heart. If we're going to make any headway, any progress, then I, we have got to know this about our heart. Deep, deep down, the default setting is that we don't really believe that God is for us. We don't really believe that God is good. That We don't really believe that God has our interests at heart. And so the answer or the question is, what's going to be the remedy? What's going to be the remedy? What's going to be the thing that, that, that goes beyond, beneath the default setting, the sinful tendency to call into question God's goodness? What's going to be the thing that gets underneath and, and pleasurably subverts that, changes that heart disposition? Well, it's found in our passage. Jesus, and I want you to use your imaginations as we conclude here. Jesus in our passage says something quite profound. He says, this is what I want you to do. I know you're struggling with this faith thing, calling into question God's goodness, and that's why you're so worried, and that's why you're not pursuing my kingdom. So I want you to do something. I want you to take a walk outside, and I want you to look up into the trees, and I want you to look at the birds, verse 26. He says, I want you to just study them, right? Breathe. There's no rush, no hurry. Just stop, rest, reflect, and watch them. And watch how they operate. Oh, yeah, they fly here, they fly there, they fly everywhere. But they're not stressed out of their brain. They're proficient, but they're not stressed. Why? Because God's caring for them. He feeds them. And then Jesus would say to you, well, then logically, surely God's going to care for you. Because, look, he, he, he regards these birds as special, but they're not made in his image. But you are. And, and more than that, you're his child. You're his son, daughter. He thinks the world of you. So surely he's going to cover your back. Surely he's going to provide what you really need. And then maybe Jesus would say, okay, well, maybe you're not convinced yet. 
Okay, verse 28. We say, okay, this time I don't want you to look up into the sky and to, the, you know, to, to see the birds. This time I want you to look down. And I want you to observe the floor, the ground, the flowers. Take a walk in a park or the botanical gardens. Just take a walk and get down on your knees and, and study them and smell them and see the, the, the variety and the different shades and the different colors. And then tell yourself, well, surely God, he's such a detailed God. He, he has great care for these flowers. And more so, me. Me? Because you tell me, Jesus, that I'm worth more than these flowers. They're dressed more beautifully than Solomon, all his glory and all his wealth. And surely these flowers that are here today, they're thrown into fire tomorrow, you're going to provide for me because I'm going to live forever. I have eternal life. I have your eternal spirit. Look up. Look down. Now, I believe if Jesus was here, he would add a third reflection. Because you remember, this is pre-cross. And so maybe he would say something like this in conclusion. He would say, okay, in addition, I want you to look up. I want you to study the birds. And I want you to look down. But what I really want you to do is neither look up or down ultimately at God's ultimate act of goodness and his demonstration of care. What I want you to do, I want you to look not at the sky or the ground, but at the one who is stretched between the sky and the ground. I want you to look at me on the cross and see there my care for you. And I believe Jesus would say this, don't you realize how valuable you are to me? Can't you see and perceive that it was through my simplicity, seeking first God's kingdom, that you have eternal security? It's through my simplicity, you have eternal security. And so why do you have to chase after this and this to bolster up your life? You are secure in me. And so you can let go. Maybe he would allude to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, a profound passage that's all about generosity and money and giving and embracing, I guess, Christian simplicity. And maybe he would say, you know, the, the verse says, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, although he was rich, For our sakes he became poor, so through his poverty we might become rich. Maybe he would say this to us. He would maybe say this to your heart. He would say, look, I want you to remember that I had eternal riches, infinite security, eternal security at my disposal. Forget Solomon. Forget Solomon and all his wealth. I had infinite wealth, and yet for grace's sake, for your sake, I embraced poverty. I became like you as your human representative, and talk about simplicity, talk about following the kingdom of God. I was poor all the way through, and I was poor, stripped naked on the cross. I experienced insecurity on the cross. My God, my God, insecurity that so through that you could know and experience and enjoy eternal security. That's what I believe Jesus would say to us. And you see, this is the remedy. Because we don't have to chase after things for security because we have it in Jesus already. And so Jesus would say to us, listen, forget about the Australian dream. I have won for you through my cross, secured for you something beyond your wildest dreams. Home with me in a place free from fear, free from moths, free from thieves, free from ruin because I was ruined for you. So embrace Christian simplicity. Can I hear an amen? Amen. How about we stand as we, we conclude and pray?